Namaste Jai Hind welcome to another edition of ANI podcast with Smita Prakash Today my guest is Professor Salvatore Babones who's an American sociologist living in Sydney Australia He writes about Asia's role in the global political economy with special focus on China and now India He's published a dozen books and several academic articles. In 2022, he criticized democracy indices who downgraded India under Modi, and for that, the conservatives in India adore him and the liberals are suspicious of him. Professor Babones has been a regular on the Indian media scene and is very active on Twitter with several Indians who retweet his India tweets. Professor Babones thank you so much for coming on the podcast with the you know I've been wanting to speak to you I met you at the Mangalore Lit Fest and uh, I was looking forward to uh, you know your interaction there itself but then the podcast is where we meet so um i have a bunch of questions i'd like to begin by asking you that this is your second visit uh, to india only you, my second visit only your second yeah. visit and i noticed that you know you had this fan crowds coming for selfies and <laughs> the it seems like the left wing is suspicious of you and the right wing just adores you sees you as their mascot and uh, they they kind of like it that you know you you are uh, you're not suspicious of india and you are uh, you're bullish on india of course you know so uh, i wanted to know whether how your second visit has been Uh, first it's just been a pleasure and as the first visit was and it's been wonderful having uh, let, let's be honest a small but highly committed yeah. <laughs> fan following thanks everyone you know i'm thrilled that uh, that that you want to read my stuff and retweet it and no one will be hearing about things i'm doing if people weren't retweeting it so yeah. thanks to the retweeters thank you retweeters uh you know it's really generous of them to put me in their timeline A second visit has been much more relaxed than the first. Though relaxed is a relative <laughs> term. Uh, the yeah. first visit, I hardly got outside of a hotel hmm. conference room. Uh, this second visit, the one thing I really wanted to do was see Varanasi. Hmm. Uh, I wanted my first on the ground, on foot, no minders. I can go where I want. Experience of India to be Varanasi, because I wanted it to. you know the oldest city in the world the holiest city at least in you know, for several religions uh i wanted that to be my first introduction to india and it really was uh, worth it it was very special um i was a visiting professor at banaras hindu university and my first morning there uh i just took a walk uh to the ganga straight to the ganga it was about 15 minutes to get to the banks of the ganga My first moment at the Ganga, I shared it with uh, about half a dozen cows, mm. and we all had a nice visit together. I shared my grapes. I, yeah. I was eating grapes I'd okay. gotten on the street, yeah. and uh, the cows and I shared some grapes and views of the Ganga, and uh, it was really magical. Mm. Much, much better than going straight to the tourist center to start yeah. at the end. and walk past all the ghats down into the center. You're not particularly religious person, but what was the did you feel anything spiritual or did you feel what was the sense that you got because everybody has a different experience sure. uh, when they go to the Ganga. I don't want to disappoint anybody, but I'm not religious at all. Yeah. I I'm entirely atheistic. Uh that said, I could tell that it was a very special place. Mm. Uh so I didn't have any spiritual awakening or or anything like that, but uh getting there and i have to say with the cows <laughs> it, it was the cows that made yeah. it truly special and i can yeah. see why 
why the cow is revered in India. I mm-hmm. myself am a, ve- a vegetarian and okay. a really enormous milk drinker. Okay. Uh, and so, you get fabulous uh, milk-based uh, sweets out there, some desserts that they make in Varanasi. Oh, I don't want the milk-based sweets. I just you want the milk. Just, okay. <laughs> if I could... Actually, one one small disappointment in India is that people don't serve milk. I, I thought the yeah. cow is, you know, the, the, the cow is revered. Just give me a big glass of milk. No, not all Actually, the sweets, not all milk, these curds. But uh, I think uh, they're hesitant to give it to foreigners because they think that maybe you would think that, you know, it's uh, it's not pasteurized or, you know, it's oh, not. Course, so I think they're hesitant to give anything which right. is not uh, cooked. And at know? the Vishwanath Temple, I did have the opportunity to uh, give milk to the god. So okay. that was uh, that was an experience. Okay. Right. So from Varanasi, where did you Go forward. I arrived uh, first in Delhi. Mm. Uh, on each visit to India, each of my two visits, my first visit, uh, I arrived in Mumbai, and I immediately had a. Um, uh, uh, oh, how can I? <laughs> the most standard Indian uh, appetizer. Samosa. Uh, samosas. Thank you. Yes. How can I blank? I'm, so my very first meal was a samosa. This time I arrived in Delhi. Uh, and my very first meal was a dosa. <laughs> so I, oh, it I, wasn't a samosa. So the two, no, no. So the two greatest foods in the world, uh, a samosa and a dosa of for course. a vegetarian. <laughs> so I had my dosa masala, then caught the plane to on to Lucknow. Uh, and, and so I was in Lucknow for three days for oh, the, yes, UP, the, the Global UP. Investor Summit. Yes. And then uh, onward to Varanasi on mm. the Rajdani Express. That was an overnight, yeah. not overnight. It was a sleeper train, but I was in the daytime or early evening portion. Yeah. And that was my... My famous meal in second class in the Rajdani Express. The, oh, and there was, was that some interesting of the best anecdote I've ever had. You have to tell us about that anecdote where you put that picture. You tweeted that picture. It was wonderful. So I, I was on the train, and they they sir, I, I was shocked mm. that in second class, on an Indian train, which I what did I pay five dollars for this seat? I have no idea what it was. It was super cheap. Um, somebody came and brought me uh, dinner. Mm. I thought. I thought you had to order dinner or pay for it. No, no, no. He's, he just brought me. This is part of your your ticket. And I was really shocked. And I, I put the tray aside and I went to take a photo of it. And I think Mr. Kumar, the uh, the porter, was worried that something was wrong. I wanted to complain. So he asked someone who spoke English. And I said, no, no, no. I, I'm amazed. I want to take a photo, send it to the minister you know that yeah. the, the what great service that you're getting hot and, meals and then Mr. Kumar wanted to take a photo with me, <laughs> so we did the selfie. Uh, I ate it all. Some of the newspapers misidentified uh, it as chicken curry. Of course, mm-hmm. I'm vegetarian. It was a veg okay. curry. Uh, it was a veg curry, some kind of dal, rice, uh, and naan, or some kind of bread, and it was uh, just fantastic. I, I, I okay. mean, some of the. I, I'll say some of the best Indian food I've had, certainly some of the best curries I've had. Mm. And I guess curry is something that if you make it well, you can make yeah. 10,000 gallons of it just as easily <laughs> as you can make one gallon of it. So, you, know, you were in Uttar Pradesh uh, at the summit. And uh, I uh, recall uh, seeing one of the videos that, uh, you know, where you have said, you've compared Uttar Pradesh and you said that if you see Uttar Pradesh or Bihar, the per capita income is really low. In sure. spite of that, I mean, it, and you compared it to some of the other Uttar countries. Uttar Pradesh has the same GDP per capita as Ethiopia. Hmm. Bihar is down at Rwanda. Yeah, we we forget just how profoundly poor these parts of India are, and we forget it because compared to poor African countries, these states are reasonably well administered. They have 
know, they have working train services. They have a usable road network. Oh, okay, maybe they're not at, you know, California standards. Mm. Uh, well, the trains are better than California, but, but maybe the roads yeah. aren't at California standards. But um, compared to other places that have similar income levels, now I haven't been to Bihar, but I can say that Uttar Pradesh, certainly compared to places that have similar income levels, Uttar Pradesh is incredibly well administered. Mm. Now, somebody out there will say, how can you say Uttar Pradesh is well administered? I've had this problem, I've had that problem. And I say, well, go to Ethiopia. I, I mean, Ethiopia is in the midst of its, I don't know, its fourth or fifth civil war. Uh, you know, entire parts of the country are not reachable from other parts of the country. You might have a, you know, dusty dirt road connecting them. There's no national train network in sure. Ethiopia. Uh, there's perpetual risk of famine. There's been a famine in, in the past year, a war-induced famine in, in Ethiopia. Um, there, the Political violence in Ethiopia is extreme. Uh, there's right now only one political party that essentially controls the entire country. I don't mean one party that wins, like you know, the you know, Yogi and the BJP have won in Uttar Pradesh. I mean, it's effectively a one-party state. Mm. Um, that's what you get on $1,000 per capita GDP. And when you look at Uttar Pradesh, already it might not be perfect. There are lots of problems. There's certainly persistent poverty. But, you know, you're nearing, I think you're at 100% electrification. You're nearing 24-hour electricity. Uh, everyone has a toilet access at this point. Um, you know, you're working on piped water. I don't know the stats of Uttar Pradesh. And I think, most importantly, uh, <clears throat> you know, there's no food shortage. And sure. everybody got vaccinated during COVID. Sure. And, 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 and there's there, there's free meals on the second class <laughs> train in Uttar Pradesh. Yeah, I'm yeah. sorry to keep coming back to that, but yeah. that's something emblematic that if you compare mm. a, a poor area of India, I mean, India as a whole has the same GDP per capita mm. as sub-Saharan Africa. Yeah. And if you have a vision in your mind of the quality of life in sub-Saharan Africa and benchmark India to that, of course, India's social reality is incredibly better than the social reality of sub-Saharan Africa taken as a whole. Uh, and that's why we would expect economic growth to continue in India, because India's economy is simply bouncing up. It's catching mm. up to its social development. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, you're, uh, you're an American uh, professor and you live in uh, Australia. Sydney, Australia. Yeah. So you, you know Western democracy. So <clears throat> Indians or middle class Indians at least tend to compare ourselves or our conditions with the West, the Western democracies. And then you feel that we haven't reached there as yet. You you know, when, when you're privileged enough to have uh, governments which change by the ballot mm -hmm. and you're, you're privileged enough to not to worry about the next meal on your table, then you tend to think that it's not enough because we are still not a middle income uh, right. economy. So um, I read somewhere where you had said that um, to get to a middle income uh, economy, it's going to be agri-reforms that will get us there and right. not make in India. So could you tell me a little bit about that? Well, first, there's nothing wrong with make in India. And, and mm. it's entirely appropriate to be seeking to make products locally. And uh, that's a, a perfectly re legitimate and reasonable aim. So I'm not criticizing make in India. Um, but it's not necessary uh, what's necessary to have middle income status is to have high productivity throughout the economy or to have middle income status to have at least a reasonable medium productivity throughout the entire economy. So India exports about 20% of its GDP. 
that's pretty ordinary. Uh, Brazil exports about 20% of its GDP. Argentina exports about 20% of GDP. Those countries have GDP per capita that are three to four times hmm. India's level. And they have that because they have extraordinarily productive agricultural sectors. Uh, that is, in those countries, agriculture is a leading industry. Yeah, they, they export their agriculture, but the point is that their agriculture is productive. And other sectors are less productive. So the manufacturing sector in, well, in Brazil is not so bad. In Argentina, the manufacturing sector is notoriously very low productivity uh, because there are lots of regulatory barriers and union barriers to, uh, to manufacturing. Now, you can con contrast that with East Asia. In East Asia, exports as a percent of GDP tend to be more like 40% of GDP. For China, it's around 40%. Or Mexico. Mexico is an export-driven mm. economy, and their exports are about 40% of GDP. Now, China and Mexico have the same GDP per capita, again, in rough terms, as Argentina and Brazil. They're just different models. The most efficient sector in Mexico is the export sector, and agriculture is lagging behind and keeping the economy back. Okay, so the route to middle-income status simply, is, simply requires that the economy as a whole be productive at the level of roughly $10,000 per person per year. Hmm. If that's what the economy as a whole is producing, okay. you'll reach middle-income status. There's no one route okay. to that. And given the size of the agricultural sector... Did you say $10,000? Yeah, roughly $10,000 GDP per capita okay. would be a middle-income. I mean, $8,000, $10,000, anywhere in that range. Right would, now we are at what? 2200 2250 yeah, I mean, I don't know. The, yeah, India's growing so fast, much. I don't know the exact number, but <laughs> so, under 2500 and it's supposed to be, uh, at the end of the decade, it's supposed to, according to the IMF, it says $4,000 by the end of the decade. And I think rather so, higher. I think the I, look, no. I'm not an economist, <laughs> but I, I, I think uh, the, the IMS, IMF is probably lowballing that. And mm. not because I'm a better economist than them, but because I'm a better sociologist than them. Yeah. We have a lot of debate over whether sociological or economic approaches are better for understanding growth. My own uh, feeling is that if you want to know what inflation will be in quarter two of this year, talk to an economist. I don't know what's <laughs> going to happen. If you want to know the long-term developmental mm. trajectory of a country, I think talk to a development sociologist. Okay. That the, the real question is, uh, what is the what level of economy is commensurate with the society you have? Mm. And I use that approach most famously in, in studying China in, in 2011. Uh, I had an article on, on the cover of Foreign Affairs magazine saying that Chinese growth would top out at around $10,000 per capita in around the year 2020. And appearing in that same issue of Foreign Affairs was an article from your own chief economist-to-be, Arvind Subramanian, uh. who said, no, 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 by 2020, China is going to be growing at you know, 10% per year. By 2030, I think it was 2035, it would overtake Europe in GDP per capita, and by 2045 overtake America. And I just said that was ridiculous because China has a typical middle-income society. The problem was for China in 2011, its economy still was underperforming relative to its society. Mm. Uh, and that's because of central planning. And you, you take away the bad central planning and the economy will bounce up. And in the same way, India, due to its legacy of, uh, let's face it, I don't want to take sides in Indian politics, but Nehruvian central planning, as legacy of colonialism and Nehruvian central planning, uh, India's economy has underperformed, underperformed its society for decades. Take off that lid uh, and India is going to grow rapidly, bounce back to, be, to an economy that's commensurate with its level of social development. 
Um, mm. Countries with GDP per capita of $2,000 per year, Sub-Saharan Africa, there is not a single IIT in Sub-Saharan Africa. Yeah. Not, not a single one. I, I mean, you cannot find that level of training and education and engineering in Sub-Saharan Africa. Mm. Uh, we can go to other stats like, you know, paved roads, railroads, etc. Yeah. Sub-Saharan Africa education. can't match mm-hmm. these statistics. Mm which means that India has a much better infrastructure, social and economic infrastructure than sub-Saharan Africa, but bad planning kept it down at African levels of output for decades. Remove the bad planning, India's bouncing up. Let me come back to agriculture. <clears throat> when you were saying that, uh, do you think that India's not doing enough or is it at the cusp of you know doing better as far as agriculture is concerned? India, India is still doing too much is the problem. Okay. Uh, the, what, what Indian agriculture and industry needs is simple deregulation. De- it, okay. it, it needs, the government needs to do less mm. to get out of these spaces. And in industry, that primarily means privatizing remaining state-owned enterprises, reducing regulation, the sort of things the government is very aware of. You know, cut red tape, reduce regulation, mm. harmonize taxes, uh, you know, make it easier for people to invest uh, accelerate the uh, legal system, so stop this you know, yeah. backlog of years in the in the legal system. Get rid of uh, uh, the retroactive application of tax laws. Uh, you know, all of these things. If, if India simply gets rid of all of the oppressive government regulation, uh, industry will boom in India. Now, okay. if agriculture, the situation is even worse. Agriculture, of course, is an extraordinarily highly regulated sector. And it's subsistence sector. level in many cases. Well, right? some of it's subsistence. Some of it is just wasteful. wasteful. I, I mean, India, because of the price support, minimum price support system, produces extraordinary amounts of rice and wheat that just get stockpiled and eventually decay because they're just not needed. Um, all of these very productive farmers in Pujam and Haryana should be encouraged to switch over to high-value-added products like edible oils. I mean, India, it's, yeah. it's ridiculous that India, which is such a massive agricultural producer today, is still laboring under famine-era policies that were designed to overproduce basic the food security. Food stuff, the food yeah. security issue. When, and, and it imports, I, I think it's 10 or $20 billion of edible oils. Well, you know, if India wants to reduce, if India really wants to do import substitution economics, and that's the idea behind Make in India, yeah, make your vegetable oils <laughs> in yeah. India. That would be the number one easy win for India is shift agriculture. And, and the way to do that is through marketization of agriculture. Right. Let's move to the other subject, which <clears throat> is, uh, you know, you've said that India under Modi is wrongly portrayed as a fascist state. And uh, you said Indian intellectuals are fueling that narrative yes. about uh, the country that was that was a very provocative the statement. Indian intellectuals are anti-India. It <laughs> yeah. was hilarious to me that that was provocative. I didn't mean it to be provocative because, first of all, everyone knows it. <laughs> I mean, that's why it resonated. Um, but if I said American intellectuals are anti-American, Australian intellectuals are anti-Australian, no one would care. And look, and everyone knows what I mean. Yes. I mean, the people who objected said, "You know, how dare you call me anti-India." That's obviously not what I mean. This is shorthand for the people who are vilifying India on the international stage are mm. primarily India's own intellectuals. That, that, yeah. That's the longhand if you want to spell it out. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, I've had people complain, well, what about these other intellectuals? Like, Look, everyone knows what I mean. Uh, mm. It's just a shorthand, but the shorthand, I guess, you know, mm. captured the imagination. Um, India's intellectuals as a class are responsible for Western understandings of India. The, the West is not sending fact-finding missions to India. 
Hmm. Right? Our knowledge of India comes from a relatively small number of highly elite intellectuals who have access to publications, Western publications like the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal. They write op-eds in these publications. And those op-eds are... They, they tell us, I mean, half a dozen Indians, mostly Indians, some other from around South Asia, uh, tell us what the reality is of India. I mean, our knowledge of India in the West comes from half a dozen elite Indian intellectuals who have access to these publications. And the message we get is that India has become a, an autocratic, authoritarian country on the verge of despotism where elections are no longer free, where fascist, uh, you know, fascist shock troops roam the country. I mean, I mean, let me just give you one example. Uh, if you read anything about the RSS, now everyone in India knows what the RSS is, Rashtriya Savamsavak Song, forgive my bad, no, that's <laughs> bad pronunciation. Yeah. Uh, you can like the RSS, dislike the RSS. I can take it or leave it. I'm obviously not a Sangi. I'm an American, yeah. anyway, an American intellectual. Um, if you read any Western portrayal of the RSS, they will say... It is an ultra-right-wing paramilitary organization. Right. Now, the RSS is a conservative organization. It's nationalist. Um, right-wing, well, I know you in India throw around the words left-wing and right-wing casually. Maybe yeah. you can call it right-wing. It's certainly not some kind of ultra-hardcore mm. you know, organization. It's certainly not a paramilitary organization. There are no arms in the RSS. And, no. and, but people will say, well, they've exercised with Lathis. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. well, that's not the same as exercising with AK-47s, you know, mm. let's face it. But, but when Indian intellectuals call the RSS a right-wing paramilitary organization, what we imagine as people in Australia or the United States, we imagine uh, terrorists with AK-47s. Sure. That's the, you know, we imagine people, or, or, or people in uniforms. You know, we imagine black shirts in Mussolini's Italy or brown shirts in Hitler's Germany um, going around beating up uh, people who belong to other, you know, beating up communists and beating up liberals. I mean, I'm sure someone has been beaten up by someone who is an RSS member. We're 1.3 billion people, right? Somebody's someone beating people. But, but Indian intellectuals, I mean, journalists for major Indian newspapers are not being beaten on the streets every day by gangs of RSS youth. In fact, most of the RSS people I've met are overweight, overweight middle-aged men who could use some Lathi training. Right. So this is, um, you know, this this wild exaggeration hmm. of the threats people feel they face in India becomes just what we hmm. accept as the truth in the West. Because why would we know any? Different, and so it's not just the vilification of we, the RSS. You, you mentioned these uh, these <clears throat> news portals. You know, when in the seventies and in the eighties, till mid eighties, till there was a meltdown in uh, you know in budgets in in America in in all mm -hmm. the Western countries. Till there was that. Um, these networks had budgets to cover India. They would their reporter would not file a story unless he went on location. Mm -hmm. It could be anything. It could be Mrs. Gandhi's death, sure. uh, her assassination, and the riots that followed. They would go there and cover it. It could be the Khalistan movement. They would go. You know, these reporters like Mark Tully and the others would go on location. They would meet with. Uh, victims of terror, they would right. meet even with the terrorists or, you know, find out mm -hmm. what the ideology is. They would do all that. Then came the shrinking of budgets. 
And when the shrinking of budgets happen, there's just one reporter mm-hmm. for well, it's not just that. the reporter. And that's it. The reporter is in most cases a non-resident Indian who's come back to India. Mm-hmm. Because who's desperate to come report on it? Who wants to be the major American newspaper's India reporter? Well, probably someone from India, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. who's succeeded in the West. Now, I have nothing against non-resident Indians. I have nothing against Indian reporters. But we've seen this before in the United States with, you know, in the 1920s, 30s, 40s with portrayals of the Soviet Union. We yeah. saw it where the everybody who was reporting in America on the Soviet Union were a bunch of white Russian emigres hmm. who had been kicked out of the country and were very angry with the Soviet regime. And so we couldn't, you know, our picture of the Soviet Union was entirely it's warped. Cute. yeah. Because throughout the entire Cold War, almost everybody writing about the Soviet Union had an axe to grind. I mean, the most famous American analyst of the Soviet Union was Zbigniew Brzezinski. Uh, now, he was an eminent, eminent uh, political scientist and, uh, and journalist, uh, but he was a Polish emigre who fled communism. Can I trust Brzezinski's view of communism? Yeah, probably not. He probably has a, you know, an axe mm-hmm. to grind. And, and in the same way, almost always when you see these extremely negative reports of India in the Western media, uh, I don't know the citizenship status of the person writing it, but the name is almost always Indian. I'm going to read out some, uh, you know, some parts because you're an American in Australia. So, you know, both Western democracies, uh, there's this opinion piece which has been published in one portal. And I'm sure it finds echoes in various uh, portals which which you would have access in your country too. It says... Modi embodies right-wing populism, a modus operandi he shares with uh, with Trump and Boris uh, yeah. Johnson and Bolsonaro. And uh, each of these like-minded politicians share a propensity for anti-establishment sure. and uh, anti-elitist rhetoric. Uh, every man's persona appeals to the masses. Both Hindu nationalism provides uh, Modi with a specific ecosystem of support that differs from right-wing populist movements in other nations. Would you agree with this comparison about Modi uh, and with Boris Johnson? I I, I like to avoid terms like left-wing and right-wing because there are no true left-wingers and right-wingers in our democratic countries. The populism and the fascism. Let's instead call it um, traditionalist. Okay. You know, traditionalist or nationalist. Is he a traditionalist populist? Yeah, that's a fair characterization. Hmm. Uh, is he much like Boris Johnson or Donald Trump? Eh, probably not. <laughs> He's mm. probably a lot more conservative and a lot mm. more um, reputable <laughs> in mm. many ways than Boris Johnson or Donald Trump. But the, the, the characterization you've just read is really not wildly off kilter. I mean, that's a, I mean, it's a reasonable characterization that the mm. BJP is a, a conservative political party led by someone who is, you know, comes from a broadly anti-intellectual tradition. Let's face it, the BJP is not the biggest fans of uh, establishment Mm. university professors. (laughs) This is Mm. not, these are not their core constituency. And like Boris Johnson and Donald Trump, uh, Bolsonaro, let's leave aside, because Bolsonaro is, comes from a much rougher political environment in Brazil. I mean, Brazil has very extreme politics. But, you know, Donald Trump or Boris Johnson, um, for those who want to vilify Donald Trump as the ultimate evil, that may sound like we're going to vilify Narendra Modi by uh, by comparing him, but uh, you know half of America voted for Donald Trump. They voted Trump. exactly, <laughs> and um, and you know half of Britain or forty percent of Britain voted for Boris, Boris Johnson. Johnson. I don't so I don't find anything disreputable hmm. about being a traditionalist 
populist, anti-intellectual politician. Uh, I think the problem is the people who write these sort of pieces seem to think that's some kind of insult. Mm. Now, for me, I'm not a traditionalist conservative. If I've been embraced by traditionalist conservatives, both in India and in Australia, I might add, it's simply because I've insisted that conservative traditionalism is a perfectly reputable, tradition, uh, perfectly reputable, legitimate uh, political position with long standing uh, in our Western democracies as well as in Indian democracies. Because in India, the intellectual domination, the domination of the intellectuals for almost 30 years or 40 years mm-hmm. would <clears throat> was by socialist leaning intellectuals. The other side was not heard at all. And that's the reason the BJP uh, would be termed as anti-intellectual. They are anti-intellectual. So, yeah. so I think people who resisted this label, I think, are just being ridiculous. Mm. Uh, I, I mean, the, the BJP, you know, has been at war with JNU, <laughs> you know, for decades. Mm. Um, of course, they're an anti-intellectual party. I just don't see anything wrong with being an anti-intellectual party. Okay. I mean, you know, Sardar Patel was... If anything, you know, an, an anti-intellectual get things done sort of. Per, I mean, everyone else in the Indian independence movement wrote a book. Yeah. They were all intellectuals, not Patel. Not <laughs> you know, Patel. he was yeah. he was a get things done person. And you know, there's there's room in democracy for that. The idea that uh, everyone has to be in favor of intellectuals. Well, who's in favor of workers, of doers? Mm. Those are legitimate positions as well. There's another... uh, And I'm an intellectual. I am not anti-intellectual. I simply accept that it's legitimate legitimate. to be anti-intellectual, even if that's not what I am. So there's this one uh, intellectual. uh, He's a professor of journalism Mm -hmm. uh, and at this O.P. Jindal Global University. Now, he says uh, the key to Modi's longevity is perhaps the more complex political milieu of India with its many cleavages. For the politics of right-wing populism, which wedging itself into the deepest fault lines in society, this offers multiple possibilities of creating and winning coalitions. The only constant in Modi brand of politics is its Islamophobia. Mm -hmm. Now, this is what it is that, uh, you know, the intellectuals that you were talking about, uh, they they tend to fall back on this Islamophobia part of the right. RSS and of Modi in particular. So that is the resistance that, you know, that is finding uh, space in, in social media where they get angry with the intellectuals. It's the one insult you can hurl at people. And so it gets hurled all the time. It, it's like in America being called a, a, a racist. Everyone's called a racist in America so much so that we... <laughs> We now just ignore it. And in the same way, you can be called Islamophobic in India, and that's an insult you can hurl at anybody. Look, this kind of analysis, you could take the same facts. And I've been reading dozens of books on Indian politics in the last couple of years, and I see the same facts repeated all the time. It's putting different words to those facts. So if instead I said uh, the BJP is a... Uh, traditionalist party that is strongly embedded in organic civil society that works to reduce uh, caste and uh, class differences among Hindus in order to build greater solidarity within Indian civil society. That would be the same Hmm. account, just from a different perspective. 
viewing it positively without putting labels instead of yeah negatively now negatively. It, it, now is is the bjp uh more a hindu party than a muslim party yeah i, I mean yes. let's not be That's ridiculous of the course it's, yes. you know of, of course it's more a hindu party than a muslim party and in a country where parties uh do tend to be communal um the bjp is probably one of the less communal parties in the country less communal in the sense that they are not well they may work at that fault line between hindu and muslim society uh they are looking to explicitly working to unite hindu society they have language that is accommodating of other religions they don't seek to exclude again at the elite level now if you are hindophobic in india might you vote for the bjp because of your hindu phobia you might but if you're racist in america you might vote republican because you're certainly not going to vote democrat yeah does that doesn't make the republican party racist the fact that somebody who's racist might vote for them and in the same way the fact that someone who's hindu phobic might i'm sorry someone who is islamophobic might vote uh bjp doesn't make them islamophobic look according to our best survey data i know there are lots of indian election surveys forgive me i don't know the quality of all of those surveys they tend mm. to be telephone surveys um pew research center does extremely high quality survey research that according to their survey from the 2019 election 19% of muslims in india voted bjp and they said now, they 19% said, of muslims yeah, and they said they were not being discriminated that now, pew research well that's different that's a yeah. different survey we can get into that i mean of the 20 of the 2019 election survey Pew found that 19% of Indian Muslims voted BJP versus 49% of Indian Hindus. Now, that means that the gap between well first of all the fact that a, a fifth of Muslims are voting BJP indicates to me that the party is much more perceived as a developmentalist party or as a tough on crime party and only secondarily if at all as Islamophobic. Second, I want to put that in perspective. I'm always a comparativist encouraging people to take comparative understandings. fewer than 10% of african americans vote republican. Hmm. Okay. So the muslim acceptance of the bjp in is india is twice as high yeah as black african american acceptance of republicans. Now hmm. that is striking to me. Now it doesn't tell me it doesn't tell me that the bjp has been successful at massive muslim outreach. Now I know Narendra Modi has the new Pashmanda Muslim uh outreach program. from everything i've read there is it's at the nascent stage well so from everything i've read you know the bjp leadership is aware that they want to do more muslim outreach and they seem to feel like they can win muslim votes by being tough on crime and promoting development hmm. and they might succeed in that uh now are there people at lower levels in the bjp who uh maybe islamophobic uh, by all accounts i've heard that may be true hmm. but we live in democracies people who go volunteer for political parties have their own motivations if if indian society if a large portion of indian society is is islamophobic you have to accommodate that those people get to vote too hmm. and if they don't get to vote for the bjp they'll vote for somebody who is much scarier so right. when when you say these things do you find yourself in minority uh in in intellectual circles in very much so because oh, look I'm a quant driven person I I come to you not as an india specialist but as a quantitative comparative social scientist and so I'm always asking 
what are the numbers? Somebody says a journalist was killed in India. I say, how many journalists were killed in India, right? I mean, I don't, I don't want to be insensitive, but things happen everywhere. Yeah, not anecdotal, and yeah. you want data. Yeah. We, yeah, we want systematic data. And where we have systematic data, we should trust the data, not trust our personal impressions. Okay. So the, the data tell us that there is a low level of discrimination against Muslims in India. Muslims report, 24% of Indian Muslims report experiencing discrimination in India. Now, again, to put that in perspective, in the United States, on the same survey with the same question, 80% of African Americans say they experience discrimination. 46% of Hispanic Americans say they experience discrimination. 42% of Asian Americans, that's you, Indian Mm -hmm. listeners, 42% of Asian Americans say they face discrimination in American society. So Muslims' self-reported discrimination in Indian society is much lower, almost half as much lower, as that of Asian Americans in America. Now, is anti-Asian discrimination in America a problem? Yes. Are we worried that there's going to be a genocide of Asian Americans in 2023? No one mentions it. Yet, Genocide Watch says there's an 8% chance that there will be a genocide of India's Muslims this year. They say India is one of the top 10 countries for genocide potential in the world. Well, that flies in the face of the hard data. And And I can't emphasize enough... This survey was the best conducted survey, probably the biggest and most best conducted social survey ever conducted in India. This was in 2019-2020, conducted by Pew Research Center. 29,999 households were surveyed in both urban and rural India. Response rates were, I think it was 86% response rate for the survey, which means you know there are no big biases due to, due to like, this is not a telephone survey. Mm. This is not only English-speaking households. It's 17 languages for yeah. this survey. So this is the best, this is the platinum survey data, the best Mm. survey data we have for this country anywhere. Mm. And this survey says that Muslim Indians say they face some discrimination, but far less than any major group in the United States that faces discrimination. Mm. Muslim Indians say that communal relations are a problem, um, but they name their number one problem as jobs, their number two problem as crime, their number three problem is corruption, and communal violence is lower than corruption on their list of concerns. That's not a country that is on, on the verge watch. of genocide. Yeah. This is a country where, yeah, there's discrimination. I, I, mm-hmm. I talked to, in Lucknow, I, I had the honor to uh, visit a mosque, mm-hmm. and I talked to a group of uh, Muslim barristers at a local court. The mosque was very close to a local courthouse. And they told me that they've experienced, their clients have experienced problems in front of Hindu judges where if they have a Muslim young boy, you know, who's accused of some kind of small property crime, that they, did, they felt that their clients got the full penalty of the law, whereas sometimes if it was a Hindu boy who had the same kind of property crime, they may be let off with a warning. Now, mm-hmm. is, is that true? I don't know. That's someone's personal experience. But that's the sort of complaint they had. Now, mm-hmm. that's a problem. If that's true, it should be addressed. I mean, no level of discrimination is an acceptable level. But as social scientists, we we have never met a society that has no level of discrimination. We we meet societies that have some level of discrimination. And so, again, to get back to the BJP, if that small number of people who discriminate against Muslims, that residual background, if they vote BJP, I say good. Mm -hmm. And I say good 
because they're voting for a party that at the higher levels is not going to tolerate discrimination. Hmm. If, on the other hand, the BJP shunned their vote, kicked them out of the party, and they went to a more extremist party that was actively calling for, you know, discrimination against Muslims, uh, that would be worse for Indian democracy. So, But this is where uh, some of the intellectuals <coughs> don't agree with you, is that uh, you say that at the higher levels, uh, the BJP doesn't want and doesn't believe and will not act on discrimination, whereas some of the intellectuals, including Indian intellectuals, don't believe that. Yeah. I don't know what senior BJP officials, you know, I, I don't know what Amit Shah feels in his heart. Mm. I have no idea. You, you know, interview Amit Shah, he'll, maybe he'll tell you, maybe he won't. But in their public uh, policies, mm. in their public pronouncements, uh, even Shaw, who's been controversial for some of his uh, pronouncements in public, which could be interpreted uh, as being anti-Muslim, he uh, seems to have been caught off guard when those were taken in that way. I mean, he, you know, Amit Shah, of all the major leaders, he probably skirts the line most mm. between what would be considered perfectly acceptable in America and what in American political discourse would be rabble-rousing, mm. right? I mean, not not explicitly anti-Muslim mm. comments, but rabble, playing to the crowd. Mm. Uh, and uh, and if that's, again, I'm not endorsing that. Sure. Um, and if Mr. Shaw wants to sit down with me and have a conversation about, you know, being polite and politically mm. correct, mm. You, mm. you know, I'm happy to have the conversation. Mm. Uh, but a small amount of political correctness. I mean, he is at Trump le- Trump levels, of saying untoward things. Hmm. Okay, Donald Trump has often said things that, you know, sound bad when you take the sound bite hmm. out of them. Uh, but you know, broadly speaking, he's certainly not racist. He's certainly not anti-black. You know, hmm. but he says things in an unguarded way. In the same way, Mr. Shaw seems to say things in an unguarded way. He could be more responsible. Now, can you endlessly play a little clip of Amit Shaw saying something politically incorrect and try to stigmatize him with it? Yes, you could. Is it fair to do so? Sure, it's fair. Everything's fair in politics. <laughs> right? and, and, and if he's going to say it, the opposition's going to repeat it relentlessly. Uh, yeah, but, you know, you spoke about genocide, yeah. uh, and uh, and you were critical about that, about you know how I- India's on the verge of a genocide. Some of these yeah. uh, research groups which say that uh, you also criticize the democracy indices which downgraded of India course. under yeah. Modi, uh, and you, I think it, that was in September 2022. Well, the paper something. was released in August, August, uh, and then published uh, in print in the September issue of Quadrant magazine, yeah. and then I was here in India. Uh, in November to talk about it at the India Today conclave. So, uh, Professor, tell me, uh, has the world sat up and noticed that? <laughs> no, Do you no, feel no. that India there's more awareness? Noticed. Yeah. Uh, no, no. There's been, I think there's just been no acknowledgement, maybe outside Australia. In Australia, hmm. I, I'm able to reach the media in Australia, and we're starting to you know, fix the media narrative. At in least Australia. there's a conversation going? No, I, I think Australian journalists are. Uh, look, I, I, because I personally have those connections with journalists in Australia and Australian journalists, I think, are more open-minded about India hmm. than maybe in, in the U.S. Uh, hmm. There's been a lot of interest among Australian journalists hmm. to, to get the story right. Uh, and so I've had access to Australian you – know, the Australian media did not report my paper, but journalists did contact me for backgrounders. On India, and I gave them the background, mm-hmm. and I've seen that reflected in the news coverage, which has been more balanced, I think, in Australia than it has been in the United States. Uh, and hopefully, we can ultimately get that 
you know, correction out there. But no, no, I, I mean, the, the criticisms of the rankings, uh, they're used to being criticized. They don't really care, I think, if they're criticized. And... Um, but it you matters know, a lot simply because, you know, we are, <clears throat> this is the penultimate year before elections in yeah. India. And uh, what happens is that, you know, reportage from from these Western nations, they find uh, an echo chamber in India. You've seen what George Soros said and you've seen yeah, look, and the Hindenburg report. If, if I could give some advice to Congress and AAP and the rest of the opposition, I would say... Uh, don't try to leverage George Soros and international media to your advantage uh, because India is an extraordinarily nationalist country and it probably will harm your electoral prospects <laughs> more than it would help Yeah, you help tweeted them. that, uh, yeah, that I, it, it's I, I going think, to benefit the BJP. Yeah, I mean, who, look, and who's endlessly talking about Soros? Dr. Jaishankar is endlessly yeah. talking about Soros. I mean, why is Dr. Jaishankar endlessly talking about George Soros? Because he sense the, the electoral, he sense, he sense votes in the BJP in being criticized by George Soros. The same with these international democracy rankings. Playing them to... Um, to chastise Mr. Modi or, or playing them to try to make you know the BJP look bad. Yeah, it may make the BJP look bad in Washington and New York, but Washington and New York don't vote in yeah. India elections. And uh, sadly, the narrative of we are being unfairly criticized by the West, that's much more likely to win votes in India then look, you know, the New York Times agrees with me that Mr. Modi is a dictator. Uh, you know, yeah. The New York Times agreeing with you is the kiss of death in a, national, <laughs> a nationalist country like India. So, it, it's, uh, What about it, in, in Australia? How does, like, if the New York Times was to report something that happens nobody in Australia? Nobody cares. Uh, okay. so, so Reporters Sans Frontiers uh, downgraded Australia on its Press Freedom Index. It wasn't even reported in Australia. Okay. And they included a quote that uh, 85% of journalists in Australia fear persecution at the hands of the government. <laughs> and I, I read this on a podcast to an Australian colleague. And okay. he said, you're talking Hilarious. about... He said, you're talking about India? I said... No, Australia. <laughs> I'm talking about Australia, and he couldn't believe it. I had to show him this was actually in the okay. in the report. So none of this gets reported in Australia because no one in Australia cares at all about any of these yeah. international or rankings. any international opinion, or is it because there's a confidence in their own opinion and yeah. their own? Yeah, there, there, there's a confidence, there's a self confidence, and, and a comfort mm. that, level that um, they know they're fine. Mm. Uh, nobody believes that New Zealand is a higher quality democracy with a freer press than Australia. New Zealand is a, you know, for by Western standards, a troubled democracy that has a, a very limited press that hardly ever disagrees with its own government. It's almost, it's paid for by the government. Uh, so everyone in, in Australia, except the journalists <laughs> who, who rate Australia badly, everyone knows that Australia is better than New Zealand <laughs> on all of these on all of these metrics. You know, richer, freer, uh, you know, more robust political debate. And so when New Zealand gets extolled by all of these international rankings, they all place New Zealand number one, two, or three, and Australia down in the twenties and thirties. Um, no one even notices. It, it doesn't even get reported. Okay. It, it, it's it's incredible. Uh, no, no, it, it's in India where these things are uh, weaponized. They seem to have become part of the debate, but they're weaponized in the English language debate about India, where Correct. people seem to be more concerned with scoring points against each other than with winning elections. Yes. The biggest challenge facing India democracy, Indian democracy is the opposition just isn't 
up on its game,、mm. and India needs a stronger opposition. They 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 can't ask the United Nations to come and somehow slap down the BJP so that it can't fight as hard in the election.、Mm. You, know, you can't say it's unfair my opponents fight so hard. You have to up your game and fight、yeah. along with them, and not expect Soros to up your game. Uh, look, Soros can't up here because it's the kiss of death to get money from George、yeah. Soros.、Um, you, you know, you 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 have to up your game, and so I've seen complaints in the Indian media、uh, about. Well, I'm reading. Everyone might might love or hate me for this. I'm reading Rajdeep Sardesai's book about the 2019 election. I'm really enjoying it, and he has effectively complained about the BJP. Complain is the wrong word. He's criticized the BJP. For having a culture where it makes its party workers get up at 6 a.m., work all day, and work until after midnight, and then next next day at 6 a.m. they have to be back at work. You know、yeah. this inhuman treatment. This is somehow a you know authoritarian. It's like no, no. That's that's how you win an election. Yeah, <laughs> and, and also、uh, the use of media. You know, in 2014 and in 2019, the BJP、uh, had this media outreach. They would. They would provide、uh, platforms. They would、yeah. make the platforms, and if you went there to cover an election, there was a platform which had a vantage point,、yeah. and you could get the best shot. Now, if they've provided that, and you are getting a、Absolutely. good shot of the speaker, of course you're going to use it. Of course, you'll use it, right? I mean, it it saves a media organization from sending a. Maybe a tripod, yes, but may, you know, not the the paraphernalia that goes, or else a connection from the mic of the speaker to the cameras、right. directly. So you had multiple pods. All of this local organization having, yeah. You know, somehow it, it's been portrayed that as somehow anti-democratic that the BJP has booth level organization at I exactly ninety percent you know, booth. No, no, that's exactly democracy. The problem is that the opposition parties don't have. And actually, the Congress had that. I mean, in a democracy, you know,、uh, the size of India, where you have,、mm-hmm. you know, a billion plus people、uh, <coughs> eligible to vote or whatever, you you need to have people at the booth level,、right. and that is what the Congress party had. But you know, once you. I guess a sense of inertia, whatever you、sure. want to call it, nothing、Natural、was working. Natural party and governance,、yeah. sort of thing.、Um, so look, look, the BJP, it, it, the BJP. First of all, we all seem to think the BJP is 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 overwhelmingly successful, is electoral steamroller, all of this. It's only been that for the last four years. Yeah. Okay. Until 2019, no one thought that the BJP was an unbeatable electoral steamroller. Not even the bureaucracy, and you know how、okay. important bureaucracies are in,、okay. uh, you know, in so-called third world so nations. So the whole world in India hasn't changed in five years.、Mm. Okay, what's changed is that the BJP has a first mover advantage. It is the first Indian political party to modernize its campaigns, and when I say modernize, I mean make them look exactly like. What the Republicans and Democrats do in the United States, where the Republicans and Democrats have、uh, poll workers at every single voting booth in the United States. They have county level organization. Every county in America has a headquarters of the Democratic committee of the county and a headquarters of the Republican committee of the、yeah. county. They're there. They all robocall every voter. <laughs> you know, they have,、yeah. they maintain voter lists. They maintain lists with categorized voters as likely voter, maybe vote. You know, and, and everyone in America is on a list of being how likely are you to vote, and are you likely to vote Democratic or Republican? And you know what? If they have a neighborhood where there are lots of likely Republican voters, the Republicans will send a bus around to、mm-hmm. get you to the polls.、Uh, you know, 
And if you're in a neighborhood that is a likely Democratic voter, they'll send the bus around to get you to the polls. They are both parties are organized as vote machines to get their people to the polls and to get people voting. They still have to get their act together about Uh, results, though. Oh, look, that's not the parties. (laughs) Oh, no, I said the parties are highly professional. Not the electoral. And the reason we have so many problems with elections in America is that elections are local. So yeah. you, you don't vote in a U.S. election. Yeah. You vote in most states, you vote in like a Pennsylvania or a Maryland yeah. election. Yeah. And in some states, you're voting in an, you know, Abbotsville, Missouri election. Yeah. <laughs> right? I've so covered like, so elections there. And believe me, I still okay. cannot the get parties, to the parties. The yeah. parties are modern political organizations. Yeah. India only has one modern political organization. That's the BJP. From what I've heard from people, the AAP has started yeah. in that direction. Uh, but a modern political organization doesn't have a, a first family, isn't based on getting a caste to vote for them, isn't based on getting people of you know only minority religion to vote for them. A modern political party fights hard for every single vote in yeah. the country in an organized way, trying to reach everyone, maximize its vote among every single person using, I, using modern IT tools. In India, that means the WhatsApp groups. In the U.S., mm. you know, there are different tools. You know, Facebook sure. may be more important in the United States. But a modern political party uses all of the available 21st century information technology tools, has a list of every voter, um, has a likelihood of probability next to that voter. Now, I, I doubt any party in India other than the BJP has a list of you know, more than 100 million voters, and BJP probably has a list of 500 million voters, uh, and right next to them, a probability of voting for us mm. based on a statistical model. Well, you can't beat a party that has that unless you also have that. If you're, if you're running elections on the basis of, uh, you know, oh, our, you know, our friend Politics so-and-so is a longtime supporter. Well, let's get him in. Oh, people in this district love this person. No, no, no. You know, polling... IT, organization at the ground level. Uh, In America, we call it the ground game. Mm. This is what wins elections. Now, before anyone was doing that in India, you could win with those old methods. Yeah. But once somebody does it, anyone who wants to compete has to to orient yourself. Yeah. And you can't just say it's unfair. You can't just say it's unfair for one party to want someone's vote more than you do. Yeah. You, have, you can't say it's unfair. You have to up your gaming and get to work. Sure. You know, you spend a lot of time with young students, uh, you mm-hmm. know, research students. So, Professor, I want to ask you, is there curiosity about New India in Australia, in America, when you meet with students? The curiosity is coming from Indians. And, and so I have um, India or South Asian students. Mm. Uh, actually, at this point, all of my uh, research students are from South Asia. Mm. which is a transition. If uh, 10 years ago, all my research students were Chinese. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, um, but this just reflects the fact that I've been studying India and Indian democracy. And so mm. I've had uh, South Asian students, both from South Asia and in Australia, reach out to me to, to study with me. And that's gratifying. And, you know, I'm very happy to work with them. I'm especially happy because I don't speak the languages. So mm. my work is necessarily quantitative, but with uh, students from South, of South Asian origin, they can, in some cases, do more qualitative work, more documentary work, I should say. I, I don't do interview-based research, but they can do document-based research hmm. under my supervision using documents that I can't access because I don't, 
I don't read Hindi, I don't read Marathi, I don't read Bengali. Uh, so that's been a you know it's been very gratifying. Okay, what are the questions that uh, that most Americans or most uh, uh, Australians have? The intellectuals I'm talking about when they speak to you about your research, do they question you as to yes. why? You yes. So so I've become known in Australia for, really in the past year or so for my India work. I I had mainly been known as a China scholar hmm. uh, until this year, but just like with India. I don't speak Chinese. I'm not a sinologist. I was studying China from a quantitative comparative perspective, mm -hmm. not through my deep knowledge of Chinese language. And the same thing with India. I'm studying India from a quantitative comparative perspective. Now, in Australia, I've started to become known as an India commentator, and I've repeatedly had uh, surprisingly senior people in Australia who should know better, I mean, people who are well-informed on global affairs, send me articles. They say, Salvatore, you know, you're saying India is so democratic. I read this in the Washington Post. It, you know, it says India has become an authoritarian regime. And I sigh and I say, yes, that's an opinion piece by Rana Ayub, who's a prominent, who's a prominent um, uh, opponent of the current government in India. Uh, you shouldn't take it too seriously. Uh, or they say, look, I read this in the Wall Street Journal, and Wall Street Journal says Indian democracy is under threat. And I say, yes, that's Sanata Dume, who is uh, a non-resident Indian. No, he's American. Is yeah. he American? Indian origin. Indian origin. Indian yes. origin intellectual at, at, the, at the Cato Institute, who's very keenly interested in Indian politics. That is, they don't see the author of the one, one from the Wall Street Journal, which is from a, uh, a Bengali... Uh, I'm going to blank on the name. He authored a book called uh, uh, To Kill a Democracy, India's Passage to Despotism. And, you know, people sent me his op-ed in the New York Times. They said, New York Times says India has now become a despotic regime. Hmm. And I say, yeah, <laughs> you know, don't take that too seriously. Yeah. Again, that's a, a Bengali communist who's, you know, a very opposed to the current government in India. Yeah. So what they, what they don't see the names of the authors. Names of the author means nothing to them. Yeah. Article appears in the New York Times that seems authoritative. And in their minds, I mean, in most people's minds, the New York Times sent some fact-finding journalist to India yeah. to find out the truth. They don't realize that this is just Indian opinion being recycled through the New York Times, being cycled through the Washington Post, being cycled through the Wall Street Journal. And so unfortunately, most uh, Australian um, thought leaders get their understanding of India from these kinds of sources. Mm. Um, and, I, and I've had, to, it's been a lot of work convincing them that, no, you're reading highly biased accounts yeah. and let me tell you about India. And it, it, it's, it's very difficult for them to accept that there's something wrong. You know, and what's mm. funny is these are the same people who if, if I told, if I sent them an article about Donald Trump from the Washington Post, they would write it off. They'd say, oh, yeah, the Washington Post, everyone knows they're, you know, a ah. bunch of liberals, uh, you know, and, yeah, and, and yeah. hate Donald Trump. Um, but for India, they take it yes. at face value uh, because they have no other knowledge of India. I mean, they feel, they feel confident making their own judgments about American politics, about British politics. But when it comes to India, same as if you read an article in the New York Times about the politics of Mali in West Africa, uh, yeah. who knows, you know, I exactly. mean, if, if the New York Times says the president of Mali is this, this, and this, yes. would you say, oh, I've got to do more research on Mali. I better subscribe to one or two Malian newspapers. So what should no, India do then? No, you would just read. What places. should Indian media do or what should, 
to get authentic voices <clears throat> out? Uh, if I could advise the Ministry of External Affairs, if Dr. Jay Shankar wants to, to come in for a chat, uh, I would say stop being so defensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Dr. Jay Shankar uh, always stands up for India, and that plays very well for India. That's not very charming okay. to his audience. He doesn't do a lot of work to charm mm-hmm. Western audiences into being, you know, sympathetic to India or pro-India. Uh, and I would encourage him to get a list of speakers at every consulate mm-hmm. to be ready to speak to issues whenever India is in the news and to introduce them to journalists. So find um, mostly probably NRI in Indian mm. professors. Now, it'd be difficult in the social sciences, but you could find management professors, engineering professors, people at eminent universities um, who would be ready to talk on Indian affairs to the likes of you know, the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, etc., who are just ready to be speakers to explain issues in India from a broadly sympathetic, again, not a government spokesman. Sure. We're not talking about the consulate maintaining lists of yeah. you know, BJP official spokespeople, but instead people who are well-respected, who have highly reputable positions. And given India's tech success and, and science and, and engineering success, there are a lot of eminent Indian professors at Western universities who may not be social science professors, yeah. but nonetheless, if you're a professor at Yale, if you're the professor at Stanford, the fact that you're a c- computer science professor really just goes below the radar for a How journalist. How does China do it? Because you've studied China. To China has a whole different it. strategy. Ch- China buys it. Oh. Yeah, Ch- China buys its positive coverage. Uh, they, they, they go at the highest level. They provide... So, for example, there are China... There are very expensive Chinese advertising supplements in most of the major newspapers yes. in the U.S. They pay millions for these supplements. Everyone throws them out. <laughs> Yeah. Okay, but so then what's uh, the point? But U.S. newspapers are very reluctant to. Cri- I mean, yeah. they do when they have to. Sure. But so the news reporting will criticize China. They may tone it down a little, hmm. but they don't carry a lot of anti-China op-eds. No, you won't see that. Don't you see it? But it's but not, not a lot of it. No. Because losing that China Daily advertising supplement is a big financial hit. Yes. Um, not only that. You won't find a lot of anti-China op-eds because the China Studies Centers in the United States and Australia are almost all staffed with people who, while not necessarily pro-regime, are circumspect. They don't want to lose access to China. They want to be able to visit regularly. So they're muted. Even at academic institutions. Everywhere. You can't find, I I mean, uh, most Australian universities have some kind of China Studies Center, and it's rare at any of them to find anyone who is critical Grants and of donations China. come also. Uh, now, well, I've wrote a whole book on this, so I can talk endlessly about how Chinese influence works in Western universities. Uh, you, you get my 2021 book, Australia's Universities, Can They Reform?, which has a whole chapter on it. Um, but China goes in at the highest level. Its approach is by the peak level. So mm-hmm. don't worry about convincing professors to be on your side by the vice chancellor. You know, give the vice chancellor, okay. and again, it's not a bribe. I shouldn't say buy the vice chancellor, but no, give I the vice chancellor mean. something he needs. Like give give the vice chancellor what he or she needs. Give her a uh, a campus in China where you provide the land for free and offer to get lucrative consulting contracts for the campus in China. Well, Amazing. you know, vice chancellors love that. They don't want to lose that. Yeah. So they're just very worried. And, and they have their, in every Australian university and many U.S. universities, has their uh, public relations staff just 
they have a you know you can buy in the press clipping services tell us if China, if any of their professors mention China it gets reported back up to the vice chancellor's office not the vice chancellor personally because it, it's 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 seen as a critical reputational issue for the university now the same professor at the university says india is a dictatorship no, no one cares which is why you will not see any reporting on xinjiang you will not see anything about atrocities you, you see the reporting media, look, the, the new york times the new york times broke the story on genocide in xinjiang and full credit i mean let's not let's not or even hong kong the media uh, in hong kong let, let's not exaggerate what they do is they mitigate they add qualifiers they don't talk yeah. about it too much mm-hmm. they report it I mean, the Western media reports negative things happening in China, but they only report it to the extent they have to. Mm. So, for example, look at the persecution of Falun Gong in China, which is very serious. I mean, this is really crazy stuff. I mean, the organ harvesting, which is extremely well documented, that you know, Falun Gong members in China are vivisected and have their organs removed you know, to create a transplant market for export. I mean, people literally can go to China and just get an organ. Your, your liver's failing. Go to China, pay the money, you get a Falun Gong member's liver, right? right? I mean, it's, it's horrific. Yeah, this doesn't get reported, mm. right? The, the, the big headline stuff that you can't ignore, Uyghur repression, concentration camps, can't ignore it, it gets reported. But, uh, but when you get below that level, lots of stuff that would be reported if it happened in India. I mean, if there were allegations oh, yes, in sure. India of Muslims being vivisected for their organs. Could you imagine what no, kind even of if news one that would, is? Forget that would about. Be? But this is routinely happening in China. Yeah. It's very well documented. It's happening in China. Mm-hmm. There are activist doctors in America, who Western active, not not Falun Gong related, who are who are just horrified at what's happening in China's organ organ market. Um, yeah, it gets reported a little bit. Falun Gong members claim such and such, but they don't put the resources into investigative reporting of this. Why? Uh, because they don't want to go too hard. It's so dishonest. Well, it, it, it's certainly not honest, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's not as. But look, it's not as extreme as people say it is. These you know, American newspapers have not been bought out by China. They've but if simply, it's done in such a subtle manner, influenced yeah. by China, right? The, 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 it's it's. It's at the level of, uh, you know, play up the good, play down the bad. Um, it's not at the level of being, prop- you know, the New York Times is not a Chinese propaganda mouthpiece. So, and know, whenever I example, hear people say that, I, I tell no, that's simply not true. Even if it's not a propaganda <clears throat> newspaper, uh, and I won't single out just the New York Times. I'm talking about a lot of the Western media. They mm-hmm. will not write about women's rights or persecution right. of women in Saudi Arabia or in or in, in China in, or in uh, China uh, 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 women's rights in China are but very that serious. one incident in India gets played up and that's only now because of mm-hmm. a right-wing government I mean again you don't like right-wing and left-wing but a conservative I know government. these are the terms used in India in India and so okay let's a leave conservative it for India. government yeah, yeah. in India so it gets reported <clears throat> now it did happen even during Dr. Manmohan Singh's tenure there was that one incident in Delhi and um it's sometimes it happens that a one incident captures the imagination well the irony of the is nation. that all of the incidents oppression of political opposition all of the incidents listed in the Verizon Democracy Institute's report on India text report on India in 2020 all of them had to do with incidents that occurred before 2014 yeah <laughs> yet they were reported vdem yeah. only found them important 
after yeah. 2019. 2019. Uh, and we see we see a lot of this kind of mendacity. Yeah. So that's what I want to know is that uh, do you see a correction ever happening? A kind of awakening or awareness in the Western media that they are putting on blinkers when it comes to India? We're working on that. I mean, with a group of members of the Indian diaspora, we've started a think tank called the Indian Century Roundtable. And we are dedicated to providing a factual account of India. I'm pretty sure we can have that in Australia. I mean, we have good enough connections in Australia. And Mm. the Australian media have been pretty good on India. They've been pretty good on reporting Khalistan and Khalistani violence in Australia. Not simply simply repeating things you would see in the U.S. of, you know, these poor Sikhs are fighting for their rights as an independent country. In Australia, they've correctly reported, no, in fact, most Indian Sikhs do not want to secede from India, that Khalistan is mainly... A, a diaspora phenomenon. And so the Australian media has been pretty good. They're very open to this and we're talking to them. And I think with our new Indian Century Roundtable, I think w- within this year, by the end of this year, we'll, we'll be pretty solid on making sure there's a balanced, uh, well-informed coverage of India in the Australian media. Do you think that It'll take more time to get to the more US. Time. It'll, it'll take. <laughs> it'll take. More time. Uh, do you think India being part of the Quad and, uh, you know, uh, there is a more uh, greater understanding about India... No, if anything, the problem is because India is in the quad, it's become targeted. Uh, mm-hmm. That is, the narrative outside India, uh, well, certainly in the U.S. and U.K., and especially in the U.S., the narrative has been, how can we work, how can we say that this is an alignment of democracies when India is an electoral autocracy? You know, footnote, Verizon Democracy Institute, right? Uh, uh, you know, when India is repressing Kashmir, and I've heard it very high levels in the United States, and I mean... You know, former national security advisor I, I once talked to saying that uh, India will never be a proper free country until it liberates Kashmir. And, and, and this idea that you know, India has somehow illegally occupied uh, Kashmir, is that, that's simply received wisdom in policy circles in the United States. So, uh, no, no, the, the, India being in the Quad has not really benefited India's image. If anything, it's caused more targeting of India as people sense the opportunity to, to, do to some criticize bashing, India by yeah. saying, you know, uh, no, the, the only thing that's kept India off the uh, U.S. sanctions lists has been the, uh, defense purchases <laughs> and the fact that okay. India is buying so much defense equipment that, you know, the, the State Department has been reluctant to accept the advice of its own panel, the U.S. Committee, United States Commission on International Religious Freedom, which keeps vehemently demanding the last two years yeah. that India be named a country of concern for religious freedom. The State Department has held off on that, I think, almost entirely due to the fact they want India to buy F-18s <laughs> and maybe F-35s yeah, and artillery. It's that. Uh, yeah, it's the defense exports are the, are yeah. the only thing. And, yeah. and I once told this to an Indian... Uh, ambassador, uh, he said, you know, I was at a think tank summit in, in Australia and he said, how can you, how can China do so well and how can we, you, you know, beat this? And I said, well, you know, China's willing to tell its state-owned industries to buy $100 billion of Australian iron ore if you, if Australia plays ball. I said, will you buy $10 billion of Australian uranium? And he said, mm-hmm. I can't do that. We're a democratic country. We have to have open bidding. Sure. And I said, well, you know, if you're not willing to spend your $10 billion, you can't buy a bunch yeah. of miners to, to promote your interest 
in Australia. Yeah. I mean, in Australia, the biggest pro-Chinese interests are the iron ore miners. Mm -hmm. So, you know, India, it's very difficult for India to fight this because it is a democracy, because it has to play by the rules. What about ASEAN nations? Do you see them looking at India as some kind of a bulwark against China at some point of time? I, I have less knowledge of ASEAN. Uh, the historical bulwark against China for ASEAN has been uh, Japan. Japan, that yes. has been the main supporter. That said, ASEAN is not one entity. Uh, Laos and Cambodia are in many ways Chinese puppet states. Mm. Vietnam, on the other hand, is so vehemently anti-China that it doesn't need any help mm. to be anti-China. Uh, Malaysia is in play, you mm. might say. Myanmar is, of course, highly troubled, and mm. you know that's its own story. Sure. Thailand is in play. Mm. Yeah, I think Malaysia and Thailand are probably the two countries in ASEAN that um, are on the fence a bit, where India might be able to mm. have some influence. Uh, Singapore has its own. Yeah, that's thing. dynamics uh, are separate. Yeah, and, and uh, Philippines, uh, yeah. you know, is a unique case because of the former American colonialism. Uh, Indonesia and Brunei are are a bit, you know, they're not in this fight so much as the other countries are. Um, you know, India, Indonesia is a giant, of course, and is, has its own ability to you know to resist China. Uh, I, I don't know if we've missed any uh, <laughs> any of ASEAN, but yeah. but yeah, ASEAN's a mixed bag. It's wrong to think of ASEAN as a single country with a single uh, right. with a single position. India's position, though, is probably most important for Myanmar and, and shoring up. Myanmar institutions is something that the U.S. simply can't do. I yeah. mean, politically, it's just impossible for the U.S. to work in and with Myanmar. Uh, India has such long-standing and deep connections and interconnections and historical mm -hmm. connections. I mean, Myanmar was carved out of India. Yeah. Uh, that uh, it's probably the country in ASEAN where India can have the most positive impact. Yeah, Myanmar and Vietnam, I think. With India's tr going to be very ambitious when it comes to interactions uh, during the G20 uh, summits which are going to happen here and, uh, you know, with the summit meeting and the other meetings that are going to take place. So it's going to be a very busy year for Indian diplomats. Uh, uh, well, uh, what are you looking forward to in your uh, visit? Are you planning to come again in 2023? <laughs> um, I, I, I've been invited perhaps to a festival in October. We'll see if that in invitation firms up. Uh, so I hope to be back maybe later in the year. But for me, visiting India, look, I, I know it's supposed to be a pleasure and that, you know, it's wonderful and everyone's so friendly, but it, it's work and I have other work to do. Mm. <laughs> and I don't particularly benefit in terms of my work from visiting India. That is, I don't come here to study India. Mm. I study India by studying statistics and reading books and documents that, that I can get in Australia. So uh, we'll see about a future visit. G20, I Forgive me. I know it's a big deal here. I don't take it very seriously. Mm. <laughs> I don't think the rest of the world takes G20 very seriously. I know that India is you know, making a big best foot forward for this as a showpiece for India on the global stage. But uh, for the rest of the world, certainly for the developed world, I think the days of G20 are pretty much over. Mm. Uh, G20 was an emergency response to the global financial crisis, and that's now 15 years mm. uh, in the past. And... Uh, I don't know anyone who's closely following G20 outside of India. It's, okay. it's a big deal here, uh, but it's not a big deal uh, out in the rest of the world. Well, we'll see you again in October when you come. And uh, love all the best. Together. Thank you so much for spending time with us and discussing so many issues. Great to talk to you. Thanks for the invitation. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening or watching this podcast. Do like or subscribe on whichever channel you have seen this or heard this. Namaste. Jai Hind.